0: The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Thursday, September 13th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I was speaking with a friend the other day, and she said, you know what phrase I hate? He got me too Jeffrey Fager got me too'd. Louie got me tooed. would I agree. It's like saying, Bull Connor got civil rights Well, you know that Charles Manson, he was that guy who got, you're guiltied. Which is to say that John Hockenberry, former host of the public radio program The Takeaway, committed acts of bullying and sexual harassment, which some of his colleagues brought to their boss's attention, and they were ignored. And then, when more scrutiny was being brought... To men who bully and engage in sexual harassment, a journalist wrote a story, and eventually Hockenberry got fired as the host of that program. His parting prize? A one-off essay published in Harper's. It's quite a thing. I like second chances, by the way. I do not want transgressors to have no chance. But to have redemption, there must be atonement. And one element of atonement is stripping away your justifications and your defenses. And this essay began with defensiveness and descends into daffiness. We begin. If you know anything about me, John Hockenberry, it is probably that I am a familiar voice from public radio. If you know me, I am familiar. Yes, that's a tautology. If you don't know me, I am unfamiliar. Check. Also, as an opener, not quite a grabber. We continue. You likely know that I use a wheelchair because of a 1976 car accident and the resultant spinal cord injury received in the twilight of adolescence at age 19. You know that if you know me. If you don't know me, you wouldn't know that. I don't know how many Harper's readers generally know that. I guess there is a large percentage that don't, but now they do, which is, of course, the intent the whole time. It was the second most important thing Hockenberry sought to let his readers know. I'm sure it's quite central to his identity. So here's what we know. I am Hockenberry. I was on the radio. I am disabled, and I am sorry. No, no he does not say that. He says this. More recently, you may know me as a correspondent for ABC and then NBC News and finally as the host of the radio program The Takeaway from 2008 to 2017. Okay, I was on the radio, also in a wheelchair, but here's some of my resume. This is Harper's as LinkedIn Substitute. He continues. Possibly you are aware of me as the father of five children, two sets of twins, three girls, a boy, age 20 and 17, and another eight-year-old boy. I actually do know John Hockenberry. I know his work, but we've chatted now and then. I didn't know that about his children. You want to know why? It's not important that I know that. It's not important in assessing his misdeeds that I know that. But, of course, we know what he is doing. I am John Here is my wheelchair. That will be my armor. Here are my shields. They are three boy shields and one girl shield. And did I mention the Peabody? Oh, I didn't? Okay, next sentence. A cluttered storage unit in Brooklyn now contains fragments of the life I no longer live. Miami Awards for work in television and my Peabody Awards. This is the worst opening salvo in an attempted explanation or apology or anything other than If you're trying to be the sad main character in a Sam Lipsight novel or actually a parody of a Sam Lipsight novel. Wait, where was he? The Peabody? Of course, the Peabody. Also, here comes Obama. So he's further describing the storage unit and says frame pictures from travels all over the world. A signed statement of service from President Obama from my time as a member of his commission on White House fellowships. All are ghoulishly visible through plastic wrap and tape. Well, if it's so goddamn ghoulish, wrap it in bubble wrap. That is more festive. You're the set decorator in this maudlin tracking shot of your life. Next sentence. A corner filled with camping equipment and spare wheelchair parts constitutes my sole plan B at this point. Oh, God. It's it's, stop being risible and is more miserable. I think he's saying he has nothing left than to go and live in the woods he continues talking about his accusers. You ready for this? I have faced their stony and, in my view, cowardly silence. Only one of my accusers reached out or responded to my heartfelt queries. Cowardly. Their silence, which, of course, wasn't silence. That's how we know about the transgressions. Their silence is cowardly. Now, I am friends with Kristen, one of his accusers, I have zero doubt that victim is a more apt description than accuser. And she says beyond not owing him a response to his reaching out, she says he never reached out. I will spare you the rest of this essay. It is the most embarrassing thing I have ever read by a person who I once respected. That is not an exaggeration. He was poorly advised in writing it and Harper's did a huge disservice in printing it because After all this, the piece turns into, are you ready, a plea for the return of romance. He quotes Byron. He issues a bromide against blowjobs, and he objects to a piece on the internet about cunnilingus. It is fascinating. It is fascinating because in a way that Hockenberry does not intend, it is so pathetic. And that means it actually inspires pathos, which was, in fact, his intention all along. But I am going to resist that feeling. And I am going to first stipulate that I do believe that, like I said, there is a possibility for all transgressors, most transgressors, but a transgressor like Hockenberry to be redeemed. I do. And I also believe that a lot of scorn that's heaped on the apologies of harassers and transgressors are not about the apology. It's just that we hate the transgression. That's not what's going on here. Let me offer you, John Hawkenberry a plan B and also Matt Lauer, who's also talking about coming back. You happen to have an ability that m- many of these other accused men don't have, like an actor or a comedian or an executive. They have to depend on someone else greenlighting a project or to have a project to green light. But you're a journalist. So go out and find an underreported story of someone falsely accused of a crime or go to Chapas, Mexico and find out what's going on there or go and look at some mind numbing program that HUD is implementing that no one else is covering and you cover it. You have a little bit of money in the bank. You can spend a good deal of your free time that you have now reporting a lot less time sulking. And you could start putting up some valuable stories on a website that's free, that doesn't depend on you wearing the right makeup or getting the right lighting or having an engineer place the microphone just right. Just go out, be a journalist, report. I have no idea if you will be redeemed, but you may, in some small way, contribute to the wealth of human knowledge a lot more than does this narcissistic blubbering claptrap. On the show today, let's take a fun turn and in the spiel talk about potential attorneys general whose qualifications are that they can hit President Trump with lumber. But first, Margot Schlanger is here. She's a law professor. She also worked in the Obama administration Department of Homeland Security, where she was the top lawyer looking at civil liberties and employees who violated citizens' civil rights. A settlement has been reached in family separation cases. We're talking about more than 1,000 asylum seekers who were rejected and often separated from minors. They're going to not get asylum, but at least get a second chance with some different criteria for who gets asylum. Joining me now to talk about this is Margot Schlanger. She's a law professor at the University of Michigan, and she was also the officer for civil rights and civil liberties at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security under President Obama. Hello, Professor Schlanger. Thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Before we talk about what the Trump administration policy is, can you give us a snapshot of the exact people who maybe they had sought to cross the border in 2011 uh, while Obama was president? What rules would they have been under then?
1: Well, when people came in the past, they could present at the border or they could be apprehended between ports of entry. Either way, what was supposed to happen is that they were supposed to be screened to see if they had a credible fear of persecution in their home country. And if they passed that screening, they would basically be allowed into the country and allowed to pursue their immigration case here. If they came with children, they would be allowed into the country with their children. Now, occasionally they'd be detained in a family detention facility. So I don't mean that they were always not detained, but they were not separated. And detention in the family facilities was, was was pretty rare, except for a couple of exceptions. But generally speaking, it was pretty rare.
0: Now, we'll get to the children, but except for the children, by letter of the law, there's nothing different... Uh, during the Trump administration, right? They get a hearing and an assertion is uh, made if they qualify for asylum. It's just that there's a lot of subjectivity in that assessment.
1: Well, so what I would say is that a couple of things have been going on. Number one, people haven't been allowed to even present at the border. So when they approach the port, they haven't been allowed to um, make their case to a u.s government official at the border and that's very very different so that's that's a
0: first difference now do you mean a port i I think there's a distinction and you tell me you know you know much more than me but if you go to a port of entry and maybe you could also tell me how many um how many immigrants know that they're going to a port of entry but if you go to a port of entry and say i'm seeking asylum you can't be arrested but if you go to another place along the border you can be
1: yeah, so just to be clear for folks who are listening who don't realize that a port of entry just means a spot where there's a check. You know, it just mm-hmm. means like this is where you go and you present your passport. If you were say you're an American and you're coming back into the United States, this is the spot where you would present your passport. So airports are ports of entry and so are all of the land ports through, you know, Texas and Arizona and whatnot. Right. So yeah, you you go there and you say, I I feel fear, persecution, and you're entitled to not to be arrested, what you're doing is not at all illegal. You're entitled to be interviewed. And if your fear of persecution is deemed credible, then you get a chance to apply for asylum. And that's what typically happens. And I would say that, yes, non-citizens who are seeking to come to the United States know all about ports of entry because they have to go and stand in line. I mean, it's not confusing when you're at a port of entry. So that's one difference is that people aren't being allowed to seek asylum at the ports of entry. That's one big difference. A second big difference, which is no longer happening, is that there was this process where when people presented at a port or when they were apprehended between the ports, in other words, when they came, they might face an immigration arrest, but they didn't typically face any kind of criminal prosecution. That was an innovation of the Trump administration, which it's now abandoned.
0: Now, I think a lot of this suit, it's about reunification, but it's also about migrants proving credible fear. How has that changed from when you were there to the Trump administration, let's use your word, innovations?
1: So it is absolutely the case that the Justice Department has narrowed the scope of what kind of fear counts as persecution under the laws in question. So the issue of gangs and of domestic violence, both, which are really important and might be the reason why a person is fleeing, those reasons have been sort of chopped off as permissible grounds for seeking asylum. Those are the Trump administration's innovations, or I mean, it is the Trump administration. It, it's it's Jeff Sessions' innovations here.
0: Who hears these cases?
1: Um, asylum officers at USCIS. USCIS is a component of the Department of Homeland Security. It's United States Citizenship and Immigration Services. And it's those asylum officers who adjudicate credible fear.
0: So when Jeff Sessions changes the criteria, they could just snap their fingers and say, OK, now I have a different way to make these decisions than the way I've been making them you know, my whole career?
1: Yeah, so so Jeff Sessions works for the Department of Justice, and the asylum officers work for the Department of Homeland Security. So it's a little bit more convoluted than that. But what Sessions is saying is he's interpreting the law of asylum, and its credible fear is a screening technique to get people towards asylum. And so um, he, he said asylum doesn't include that stuff, and so that has some corresponding... Um, downstream effects in the in the
0: credible fear interviews so what's the practical effect of this settlement which we should say the judge hasn't approved what what is really settled and who is benefiting from this settlement
1: um so family reunification is not so much the focus of this settlement what the focus of this settlement is that there was this very unfair process for adjudicating these asylum claims of you know, interviewing traumatized kids, traumatized parents without each other present um, and ending up with denials of credible fear, where if it was done in a more regular way and in a fairer way, those credible fear screenings would have come out positively for those families. Yeah. The kids were separated and were then expected to go through a credible fear process without their parents with them, which is just frankly absurd, right? I mean, how are the kids supposed to say why they fear persecution? Like, try having that conversation with a four-year-old yeah. or even or even a, a, an 11-year-old, right? It's not that they're nonverbal. It's that they don't know the answer. They just know that they were afraid and that their mother said it's time to go. And so it was a very unfair process. Yeah. Say a mom and her kid would enter... Maybe without inspection, right, so they they enter without inspection, and she does her credible fear interview, and all she can think about is where 's my kid mm-hmm. she 's really not in any kind of space to be able to manage that process, and so she doesn 't come up with the actual information that she has experienced and needs to supply to the u s government she didn 't actually get a fair screening not. Necessarily because of the criteria the Trump administration was following, right? That's actually not addressed by this lawsuit, but rather because she was just not in the right kind of space to be able to make even a truthful, completely valid claim and so it's, it's giving them a do-over. That's the main thing that the settlement is doing.
0: So I'll read to you something that Dara Lind, who writes on this for Vox, one of the best writers, she wrote, the Trump administration is now agreeing to give up the legal advantages that it accrued by separating parents and children's cases. Do you agree with that?
1: Uh, so, so I do agree with that. What I would say is even more important, they're agreeing to a do-over. Yeah. And, and they're also agreeing to sync the cases together mm-hmm. so that um, when the cases are, have been separated and they're in different places, in different um, sort of points in the process, they are being kind of realigned and consolidated and they're going to happen together. And that actually really matters because, you know, otherwise you could have a, a, a parent who say gets denied asylum, let's just imagine, right? Parent gets denied asylum and the kid gets granted asylum. And now what's supposed to happen? Like you really want this all done in, in at one time and you don't want the parent deported until the kid's case is done because it's the parent who is necessary for the kid to have a fair process.
0: Right, right. And that's Why Darrow was talking about a Trump uh, administration advantage. Uh, They knew they were putting their finger on the scale. So the executive has great latitude when it comes to immigration policy, but it's not the case that he gets to solely write the law. Have you been surprised the extent to which the courts have stood up to uh, the Trump administration on immigration policy? And maybe I'm using stood up wrong. Maybe a law professor would not think of it as stood up, but ruled against, let us use a more neutral term, found against the Trump administration.
1: Yeah, I I, um, think there's a, um, there's a mythology of immigration adjudication and there's a reality of immigration adjudication. The mythology goes by the name plenary power, right? And there's this idea that courts are really reluctant to meddle in the realm of immigration, and I would say that mythology is very powerful, but in fact, courts have been um, uh, regulating processes in a way that can be pretty a, a pretty heavy dose of intervention in immigration for a long time. Um, so I wouldn't say that what the courts have done is a huge like sea change or anything like that. What I would say is that the Trump administration has been less fair than prior administrations. And so a similar level of court intervention is thwacking them more often.
0: Margot Schlanger, now a law professor at the University of Michigan, was the officer for civil rights and civil liberties at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security under President Barack Obama. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much.
0: And now the spiel. The Democrats are having a debate about how much to mention impeachment as they run for office. Actually, the Democrats aren't really having that debate. They've settled it. The answer is not a lot, but it's more like a leading ish question. You're a Democrat. Why don't you talk about impeachment? And you even get spectacles like this on MSNBC when former Republican Congressman Dave Jolly pressed former Democratic Senator Barbara Boxer to talk impeachment.
1: What I'm seeing right now and the Democrats being unwilling to talk about impeachment is almost the same thing.
0: Why aren't you willing to talk about it? Oh,
1: no. Oh, no, no, no. Dave, no. What we're saying is... We're going to have a report from Mueller. We don't even know how many counts will be but in that report, how he's going to define high crimes and misdemeanors. We're not hesitant to go out and say Donald Trump has to have a check and balance. He's a rogue president. He acts like a mobster. I, he is enriching himself. So and talk his about impeachment. Separate, I'm a Republican willing a minute, to say just, impeachment. Just Why won't a, a Democrat minute, say impeachment? I've said the word impeachment. But we know that will come when we get a report in the meantime.
0: Now, here in New York State, where I live, we got a sense of what it would sound like if candidates ran on the impeachment message, or at least the impeachment strong implication. Now, to state, this is in advance of a Democratic primary in a blue state. So it's a different calculus than a congressional district near you. But a couple of our attorney general candidates are going hard at Trump Here's Sean Patrick Maloney. I feel like there's a group of men led by Donald Trump who have shown up in the front yard, and they're getting ready to tear this house apart, and I'm going to stand in the hallway with a baseball bat because I don't have any choice. My kids are upstairs asleep. Dude, a baseball bat? You're running for attorney general of the state of New York, not the Duke's enforcer in Escape from New York. The attorney in that job description indicates the remedies you may wish to pursue might be of the legal, not Louisville slugger variety. Thankfully, there's another attorney general candidate. Well, there are two others, but this one, Zephyr Teachout, past guest of the gist a few times, did ground her argument in the law, not that it was less pointed.
1: I developed the first legal strategy to sue President Trump.
0: And later... We
1: can't wait for Robert Mueller.
0: Well, again, you are running for attorney general. Attorneys generally do wait to know what the evidence is. It's kind of an indictment of not even waiting for an indictment. These kind of claims, perhaps you could tell, make me a bit uncomfortable. I do know why they're being made. Not just from a practical, realistic perspective standpoint realistically these candidates want votes in a democratic primary from democratic voters and these voters fear and loathe the president and there's a direct correlation between the amount of criticism that you can aim at him and the amount of support that you will get i understand all that also he has brought this on himself Of course he has. He's opened himself up with rampant illegalities and ethical violations. But this, my misgivings aren't really about him. They are about the people running for attorney general and a little bit about all of us. My problem is if you, quote, don't wait for Robert Mueller, what you're doing is you're getting ahead of the evidence and ahead of the facts. What does it mean not to wait? For Robert Mueller's report? Well, practically it means you might start a parallel investigation on the state level. That's what the New York attorney general actually has done in the case of investigating the Trump Foundation. And I get that attorney general is an elected position. Like I said, you got to get those votes before he can do a good job holding Trump to account. But it also has a criminal division and a prosecutorial arm and prosecutors assess evidence. A voter may say, All the evidence I have and all the evidence I need has been what's reported on TV, but as a prosecutor, as an officer of the court, you should not do that. I know there's no actual ethical violation in the campaigning. It is not a strict promise of prosecution. It's more promising to use every lever you have to hold the president to full account. I get that. But like I said, it makes me uncomfortable. It is a violation of the ideal. Yes. Of course, Trump is not ideal. And that is why there is this violation. Trump is a walking norm violation that necessitates these exceptions. But after 9-11, didn't a lot of people argue, this is an exceptional time. We need exceptions. We're not violating our norms. They're violating our norms or our laws or our lives. Okay, maybe a reach to compare it to 9-11. But it is something that I think about when I watch these ads. And I do blame Trump. I absolutely blame Trump, not the people running for attorney general. Trump is a human stress test. And if I were advising the candidates, I would in fact tell them to, yes, strongly signal their intent to prosecute, should it come to that. But maybe I promise to slap Trump with fines or even handcuffs, not a baseball bat. And that's it for today's show. Pierre and Daniel Schrader produce The Gist. Maybe you are familiar with them from producing The Gist. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcast. She's making her debut in our credits because she's passed her probationary period. And I think it's all going to work out. Steve Licktie is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Definitely not the kind of egomaniac who would mention to me in a Slack channel, hey, Mike, if you mention TJ in the credits, that kind of builds up the drama for me. And then four seconds later, wait, I meant to say that to myself. Not that kind of guy at all. The gist, stoking animosity based on fictive, petty, closing credit-related insecurities since 2018. Oomperoo, dapperoo, and thanks for listening.